Hi everyone, Adrian here. Welcome back to the Waking Cosmos podcast, exploring the nature of consciousness, reality, and life's place in the universe. Today I'm talking to Andres Gomez Emelson, who is, I think, one of the world's most important philosophers. And so it's truly an honor to be bringing you this conversation. We discuss the future of life and our species, the elusive nature of consciousness, and the recent rise of panpsychism. We talk about the power of psychedelics for exploring the state space of qualia, as well as the profound ways that coming technologies may interface with psychic space. We also talk about the possible emergence of a universal ethics as an inevitable evolutionary convergence of conscious, intelligent life. I absolutely love this conversation. Andres is a truly fascinating and unique thinker who I think you really ought to know about. So I'm delighted to bring you this episode with Andres, which I hope will be the first of many. One thing before we start today's episode, if you enjoy this podcast and would like me to be able to continue making them, you can support my work on Patreon through the link in the description. You can pledge anything from a dollar a month and that'll get you in addition to my sincere gratitude, early access to every episode of Waking Cosmos as soon as it's finished. To be very honest with you, I still have quite a long way to go before I reach my goal where I can turn this into a full-time project. So right now, you really do have an opportunity to make an impact on Waking Cosmos and my life. So if you value these conversations, please consider supporting them. And of course, for those of you who are already Patreon subscribers, Thank you for your kindness and generosity. One last thing, remember that giving us a like or a good rating really does help out the podcast. If you're listening on iTunes and you have a minute, please consider just giving us a nice review, just a couple of words, and it really is helpful for boosting our visibility and getting us out to a larger audience. Okay, without further delay, I give you the unique and brilliant mind of Andres Gomez Emelson. Andres, great to be with you. How you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. I've really been looking forward to having this conversation with you. I've really been down a rabbit hole with your online essays and your um, ideas about consciousness and identity. And yeah, it's really great to have a chance to explore these ideas together. So thank you for joining me on the Waking Cosmos podcast. Awesome. I really look forward to this conversation. Excellent. Well, maybe we can start out with your views about consciousness. Uh, you suggested that consciousness is uh, probably an important or intrinsic aspect of reality. And uh, there certainly does seem to be a kind of growing openness towards fundamental views of consciousness. Uh, so, yeah, what, what are your intuitions that lead you in this direction? Right. So I guess like the one kind of like useful way to start off there is to think about basically what physics does when it describes um, the properties of matter and energy. Basically, when uh, physics describes an electron, uh, a lot of people think of, well, it's describing like what an electron is fundamentally. Mm. Uh, but in reality, it's a set of equations that allow you to determine how the electron behaves under different circumstances. Um, in a sense, physics could be described as like the systematization of the study of behavior. But it still leaves open the question, what is behaving according to the laws of physics? Right. Uh, which is definitely not answered right now by physics itself. And then uh, that paired up with the fact that we have first-person subjective experience, 
um, it's suggestive that perhaps the fundamental nature of reality is actually made of consciousness. And uh, physics is describing the way in which consciousness uh, evolves over time and how uh, different, um, extremely small at times, uh, individual points of view can interact and uh, unify. So this sounds to me a little bit like what I know as the intrinsic nature argument for panpsychism, which essentially is the view that, or it's the understanding that science and its essentially third-person approach to things can tell us a great deal about the sorts of behaviours that are likely to happen in the world, but it doesn't actually tell us anything about what things are in themselves. It doesn't tell us what the intrinsic nature of things is. And while physics implies an intrinsic nature, it doesn't seem to have any way of accessing or, or giving us an idea of what it is. Yeah, that's correct. And of course, the other piece of this is that consciousness is an intrinsic nature. It's the one thing in the universe that we know of that we have immediate, imminent contact with. And a number of philosophers now are beginning to argue that the essential interior nature of our minds is actually a perfect candidate for this mysterious interior nature of the world, which physics seems to demand and yet isn't provided by it. Yes, actually, yeah, that's a very well, very well put. And um, I think, I think, kind of, for a lot of people, this uh, ends up being very confusing, in part because of uh, having trouble really. Uh, coming to grips with a good referent for the word consciousness. If, for example, we were referring to just perception, you know, like the ability to look at the world and make a, a really good approximation of like what it actually looks like and navigate it and interact with it, then saying, oh, everything is made of consciousness is um, perhaps a little hard to interpret. But this kind of like takes us to, to the idea or apparently the, I think like pretty, pretty defensible view that you never really experience the world directly, right? You're mm. experiencing the kind of like the walls of, of Plato's cave, so to speak. It's like an internal world simulation. And there is also like a simulation of your own point of view and how you, you are like located within your own world simulation. And a lot of people confuse their own world simulation for the world itself. And if, if you have kind of like intuitions that, oh, when I open the eyes, um, I see the world because it's right there rather than, oh, there's like this complicated process that leads to a internal world simulation, then it, it's oftentimes like just very unclear what, what it would mean for everything to be consciousness. Mm. Um, but if you take the view where you're never actually in contact with the external world directly, you're only in contact with your own inner consciousness, then uh, yeah, like the how you put it actually makes quite a lot of sense. Right, so we are in, in contact with consciousness, and if we can say that that is really a part of reality, then we do have some handle on what's really out there, and uh, it begins with consciousness. Yes. Right. So we uh, talk a lot on this podcast about the hard problem of consciousness and the difficulty of explaining consciousness through materialism. And uh, you talk about a related problem, which you call the important problem of consciousness, could you explain what the important problem of consciousness is? Yeah, so uh, I think like one, one of the ways in which we, we think about it is that um, really there is a, a fork in the road ahead when it comes to uh, understanding consciousness. So mm. there are some people who consider consciousness um, some, some of a high level reification, similar to how, you know, like life 
we used to think perhaps there was a, a life substance that would animate all of the living beings. Alain Vital. Exactly. But, but as far as uh, physicists and, and biologists have been able to look into biology, there doesn't seem to be any of that. It's, it's just uh, more complexity and, and complexity in, in molecular organization. And kind of like taking that cue, a lot of people think that when people talk about consciousness, really they're reifying a very diverse set of, you know, information processing algorithms, perception, and a lot of like inner processes uh, that result in just information processing. But that is no unified phenomena that, that follows any regularity. Right. That's not how we think of consciousness. Rather, we're kind of in the, the other camp, which we would call quillia formalism. And that is the view that Basically, for any given conscious experience, there is a mathematical object uh, whose properties are isomorphic to the phenomenology of that experience. In other words, this is treating consciousness as we might have treated, for example, electromagnetism. It's assuming that all of these diverse phenomena, in the case of electromagnetism, it could be lightning and electricity, static electricity, magnets, like they actually have an underlying theoretical underpinning and, and a unifying set of equations. And um, we think that something like that will happen with consciousness. Um, and that, like, whether pursuing kind of this unification in a, in a formal way is actually going to be fruitful or not, that's what we call the important problem of consciousness. Because it really changed how uh, our understanding of the universe, of, of ourselves, and what can or cannot happen in the future. Um, it really uh, changes it dramatically, uh, which, one, which one is the correct approach. Right. So essentially by taking a formalist approach to consciousness, you're looking at it as more like a principle, like electromagnetism, something that exists in the world as a natural kind. And I suppose the important problem is then how do you chart this space? Why preference certain states of experience over others? Right. Yes, and and if it can be uh, formalized, then actually you can unify all of the different branches of science. Right, so uh, you and your colleague Mike Johnson, who has also been on the podcast, uh, have been working on something called the symmetry theory of valence, which is an attempt to begin to formalize this space of, of consciousness, of qualia. I mean, I'm not overly concerned that we might reproduce parts of that conversation, but maybe we should re-summarize the symmetry theory of valence for anyone who either might have missed that episode and missed how this is a theory which could potentially change the world. Definitely. Well, so the question that the symmetry theory of valence really is trying to answer is what, account, what amounts to uh, what makes an experience positive or negative? Uh, what makes it pleasant or unpleasant? Is there a commonality between all suffering experiences and all ecstatic experiences? Mm -hmm. And most people tend to approach this problem really from kind of an environmental perspective. It's like, oh, you know, like, what is happiness? Oh, happiness is relationships and accomplishments and, you know, competency and maybe a little bit of pleasure. But it's like they, they think of it usually as kind of like external circumstances or, or at best kind of like based on beliefs. Like, oh, you believe that you're in a good world. That is what it, it means to be happy. But we don't think that's uh, very plausible uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, to begin with, you can just straight up stimulate a person's pleasure centers with an electrode. And that produces very intense, pleasurable experiences. They don't seem to have 
to be connected to anything concrete outside of your her own skull. It seems to be more of a particular state uh, of the brain. We are really interested in figuring out what exactly makes a particular brain state pleasant versus unpleasant. And we don't focus on external circumstances, but on the mathematical features of the organization of brain activity. And for a variety of reasons, but maybe the strongest one being is the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest, easiest to test, and also arguably the simplest, and for that reason, probably the most, most likely, is to postulate that this mathematical feature that amounts to whether your experience is positive or negative has to do with the symmetry of the mathematical object that is isomorphic to your experience. Now, uh, why, why would it be symmetry? Well, here we, we kind of have to go uh, object level, like looking into how, in a wide variety of ways, uh, symmetry shows up in both pleasant and unpleasant experiences in, in different ways. Does that sound kind of like a good uh, summary? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so essentially what we're looking at is the, the degree to which uh, there is a high amount of mathematical symmetry taking place in our minds corresponds to the degree of valence or how positive we interpret the experience to be. Yes. And the symmetry theory of valence says that maybe we can test the how much symmetry there is going on in our experience and that should correlate to how good it feels yes fascinating and so i think a good example of how we can experience the different hedonic tone in an experience is with music and through the magic of editing we can add in samples here if you like in your explanation but there's a there's definitely a hedonic or like an experiential difference between certain kinds of tones yes and that is very puzzling for most um theories of valence and, and the worldviews. I mean, the standard explanation for why music sounds good uh, usually goes along the lines of, hey, it was uh, evolutionarily adaptive for us to basically congregate around a fire and, you know, play the drums and kind of like feel a, a positive uh, experience to, uh, collectively and unify as a tribe. There's also kind of a, other evolutionary accounts, things such as, uh, hey, like the tone of voice of a person uh, can be indicative of their level of health and kind of genetic fitness. And, and some people have hypothesized that music is actually a hyperstimuli of like signals of a healthy, uh, healthy voice. And definitely there's also kind of the signaling of your own inner abilities to, for example, keep a beat, which is also a signal of, of good, good health and yeah. high competence. And also be able to hum a tune is, is, is not a trivial thing. And it might have played a, a role in uh, sexual selection and, uh, and, and that's why we might all of, all of us be mus musicophiles <laughs> nowadays. Right. But um, it, that doesn't quite work for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, to begin with, you can have extremely weird sounds that show up nowhere in nature and have like close to nothing to do with how a, a human voice sounds that nonetheless have a very clear hedonic component. Yeah. Uh, Sounds that, yes, would never exist in, in the African savanna, but are like very unpleasant or, or very pleasant or very strangely completely neutral, uh, kind of like they produce affect blunting. And right. yeah, we, we really think like this is actually a, a signal of how when sound uh, activates your brain in certain ways, the particular structure that arises in your consciousness based on that, on that particular stimuli, is the reason why it feels good or bad. 
So we think of sound as a very, actually a very effective way of modulating symmetry, anti-symmetry and uh, noise in a person's consciousness. Okay, so now we're going to play three different samples, and these are going to correspond to a tone with a lot of symmetry, a tone with a lot of dissonance, let's yeah. say, and then one which is just a lot of noise. Here's the first tone, the uh, high symmetry tone. Why does it feel like that? Why does it have the good feeling that it has? <laughs> <laughs> right, so... It, it feels very good, and, and, and the reason is, um, in our theory, it would be because harmony, um, consonants specifically, is symmetry over time. So actually, uh, music is a way of, of generating symmetry in the time, uh, what, what we call the pseudo-time arrow within your consciousness, but basically is one of the dimensions of your experience, and, and it ma makes it more symmetrical in that way. Right. Okay, so now we can move on to the next tone which we should probably put a, a kind of a warning out before because it's pretty abrasive, but I won't play it too loudly, but here's a sample of a highly dissonant sound. So why does that sound so awful? <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, why does it sound so awful? So uh, dissonance uh, in, in, in a symmetry uh, account actually corresponds to the simultaneous expression of incompatible symmetries. Usually, for example, uh, we're talking about mixing uh, 400 hertz with 450 hertz, which uh, basically causes as, a, as, a, as an effect um, this beating pattern, uh, this mm. beat pattern. And, and that particular kind of uh, beat patterns are very uh, unpleasant. And an important uh, part of it is basically how uh, it produces extremely fine micro distractions. So basically, there's this quality of roughness in this sound. It doesn't allow you to basically concentrate or even uh, actually produce a, a full uh, cycle <laughs> within your own mind uh, that allows you to actually relax or lock in into a particular harmonic uh, state. It's, a, uh, it's basically constantly shifting and constantly distracting, which uh, messes up the symmetry of your experience. So to you, the difference between these two sounds is down to the differing degree of mathematical symmetry that they have, and ultimately the symmetry that they're evoking in our own minds. Yes. So to be clear, this is not due to the distinct architecture of the human mind, but it's telling us something intrinsic about the way that minds exist in reality. Well, uh, I would have to add a, a disclaimer to that, Okay. Uh, which is quite interesting. I mean, it's, it's the question of why sound and, and let's say not uh, visual experience or or tactile i mean in a sense you could you could postulate that hey if the symmetry theory of balance is correct then like uh, we should experience something like music uh, in terms of very pleasant experiences uh, in terms of like visual experience and that's true to some extent i mean most of art tends to involve uh, degrees of symmetry mm -hmm. and playing with symmetry in interesting ways However, that doesn't seem to produce as big of a hedonic effect as a sound. So why, why is that? Well, if you look at how, how much pre-processing there is between stimulation of either like eyes or, or the ears and brain activity, uh, you will see that visual stimuli actually has a, a very, very long pre-processing pipeline, uh, way right. before it becomes uh, 
uh, part of your experience. Whereas sound is very direct. I mean, actually, there's uh, very, very little pre-processing. Uh, the cochlea already kind of in, a, in a, a hardware way, it's already doing a frequency decomposition and that is being directly fed into your temporal lobes. And more so, there's very direct uh, tracks from your temporal lobes into the uh, pleasure centers. And there have been some studies that, that show that how thick those tracks are uh, basically uh, is correlated with how much people enjoy music. Mm -hmm. So you do have, in fact, a percentage of the population, about uh, 5% or so, who don't experience much emotion from music. Which is, I mean, it's really, really sad, of course, and very uh, puzzling otherwise. But uh, in our account, basically, that has to do with how directly the auditory stimuli is being mapped into whole brain harmony or dissonance. Testable, then? Yes, absolutely testable. Right. So now it's time to play the third sound. So here it is. Tell us about this sound. <laughs> yes. So noise basically is characterized by both the absence of symmetry and anti-symmetry, consonance and dissonance uh, in the time axis. And, you know, if you're very stressed out, listening to, to noise, these kind of like very clean, in a sense, uh, white noise or pink noise, uh, can be very soothing. Uh, because if you're stressed out, we, we uh, interpret that as there's a high degree of inner dissonance within you already. And adding noise will basically neutralize that to some extent, at least uh, mask it or increase the, the, the threshold uh, at which it actually becomes uncomfortable. And that's um, also symmetrical in the sense that if you're having a really good time, uh, listening to, to white noise may actually be, you know, um, unpleasant or it may diminish the quality of the experience. Right. I think that's formally called affective blunting. Yes, that's correct. I think part of what is so interesting about this theory about symmetry and, and valence is how intuitive it is. Like we do tend to um, experience many kinds of symmetry as inherently positive. And, you know, symmetries are the basis in some ways of patterns. And meaning as a concept as well also kind of seems to involve symmetry in, in some way. That is, uh, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting claim. Speculatively. Um, yeah, right? yeah, for sure. Uh, meaning is a very hard uh, nut to crack, in fact. <laughs> of course. But, uh, but yeah, the one, one account, uh, for example, like what does it mean? Like what does a, a symbol mean? Uh, or what does a, a concept actually mean? How, where, do, where is the meaning coming from? And there's one account in which it actually is encoding valence gradients. So, for example, uh, chocolate cake. Uh, just like imagining chocolate cake in a sense, uh, really picturing it well especially if you, if you like chocolate cake. Um, it's in a sense like depicting a potential transformation to your consciousness um, is something that actually will take you to a pretty high valence uh, state uh, temporarily. And I think a lot of the meaning in stories and narratives and uh, symbolism comes from how much they encode changes in consciousness. Right. Yeah, definitely going down a rabbit hole with this theory you start seeing symmetry all over the place in your sort of phenomenology. And it sort of makes me wonder why this theory hasn't been suggested before. And maybe that's just to say that this is an idea, the time for which has come. <laughs> I, I would say so. I mean, I would say it is, it is puzzling. Uh, there, there's a few elements, theoretical elements, that, that make it hard to 
uh, really propose it in, in a serious way and especially derive empirically testable predictions. And there's a lot of, um, I think, like theoretical handicaps, probably, uh, as I might describe them, where, for example, if uh, you're a functionalist about consciousness, and we can get into that in, in a little, little bit, or, or you have a, a behaviorist account of consciousness, um, you will be looking for pleasure and pain in the wrong places. You might be looking at them in the external world, or you might be looking at them in terms of uh, what causes reinforcement. Uh, and uh, all of these other, like, Variants or, or, or explanations that we think ultimately uh, have like have like problems and cannot really account for like the the core of valence. But to realize there's like a problem or, or something there to formalize, I, I think it requires some some theor theoretical underpinnings that have not really existed before. Right, and so the way that you would frame all of this would ultimately be from a panpsychist perspective. We're saying that consciousness is in some way probably going to be an important part of the universe. And yet, so all of this sort of high-level mathematical analysis is ultimately not taking a reductionistic view of consciousness. You're still saying that it's a real part of the world, but it's a way that we can potentially map and understand what it means to move around in this qualia space. That's right. I would elaborate perhaps on it being a reductionist or non-reductionist account. Mm. Uh, I mean, the word reductionism tends to evoke a lot of different adjacent meanings. Bad qualia. <laughs> it's like, are you going to reduce my grandmother's love <laughs> to chemicals? But I think, I mean, in some sense, qualia formalism is a kind of reduction, mm. but it's not reduction in, in the sense of basically explaining away the phenomena in terms of atoms interacting with each other, or uh, just explaining it away in terms of a, an illusion, for example. But it is reductionist in the algorithmic sense. So what an algorithmic reduction basically is, is accounting for a wide range of phenomena uh, with as few basic uh, information processing procedures or uh, mathematical patterns. And in a sense, it is a reduction, it's a massive compression you have like all of these different diverse phenomena and then you will have something pretty small with which you can replicate all of that, uh, explain explain them. But at its core, you're still not necessarily actually saying, oh, and by the way, all of these are just atoms <laughs> and, and, and that's it. it. It will be like a lot more interesting than that. Right. There's nothing intrinsically negative about reductionism as long as you keep hold of what's important. Correct. Correct. Which is the value space of conscious experience, which of course remains very real in this account, right? <laughs> yes. So one of the things that you focused on as part of all of this is the psychedelic experience as a potential area for understanding consciousness and qualia. And what is it, in your opinion, uh, that has a lot of potential in psychedelics for helping us to understand consciousness? Yeah, I think... I mean, psychedelics are, are incredible because they, they drastically change the subjective quality of, of experience. And they do so in very interesting and oftentimes unpredictable ways. Um, one analogy here uh, goes along the lines of, you know, um, in, in physics, of course, you, you will gain a lot of uh, information from studying uh, phenomena that happen at room temperature. Like maybe you, yeah, you put a glass of water uh, and, and you notice that over, over several days it starts to evaporate. But really you will get a lot more information if you are given access to a wide range of temperatures, pressure, uh, materials, 
uh, all sorts of new conditions where you can actually test, well, what happens in the extreme environments. That tends to actually be able to differentiate between a variety of theories. And I think of psychedelics as basically testing um, how, how the brain works and how consciousness behaves on very different states, uh, which just in terms of how much information that provides, I think is drastically um, drastically larger, uh, like so much more information that potentially given uh, the ability to study, let's say, consciousness with 10 uh, subjects who, who can take LSD might be as valuable as studying consciousness with 100,000 people who are forced to just be in sober states. So by radically perturbing the mind, we discover certain things which are important to the way that it's organized. Yes, we do take a, a particularly, you, you might say, like uh, idiosyncratic uh, approach to, to psychedelics in the sense that most people who study psychedelics, I mean, outside of uh, the, the, the new research with uh, brain imaging, which we think it's really, really, really high quality uh, and, and very, very good. But when it comes to like phenomenological descriptions of psychedelic experiences, uh, there's a lot of traps. Uh, people really get caught up on, on, on things that are not very helpful. Uh, to give an example, they, they might really focus on the intentional content of their experience, basically what the experience was about. I mean, they might say, hey, I saw an angel unfolding in front of me, and then there was a, a, a spaceship, and uh, there was also these like crazy radio transmission. But all of that is really just kind of narrative and, and, and symbols that honestly could happen on any state of consciousness, right? I mean, it could be DMT, it could be ketamine. What you're describing when you describe your experience in terms of what it was about doesn't really tell me very much about your state of consciousness itself. I mean, it may, maybe it tells me more about what you're interested in or, or what you're afraid of, uh, what do you need to process. But much more helpful is to describe the raw phenomenal character of the experience. So I'm actually in the process of writing a, um, a guide to uh, help people write much better trip reports. Um, <laughs> where, for example, some of the basic things is uh, describing the particular uh, frequency of, of the flickering and tracers, uh, describing the decay function of qualia, basically, what does a tracer look like? Various ways of describing the actual uh, patterns that emerge when you look at, for example, a surface, uh, in terms of the spatial frequency, uh, as well as like the symmetry groups that get instantiated. Um, and finally, also uh, concepts from differential geometry. I mean, basically, what kind of uh, geometric space uh, were you experiencing as, as a projection <laughs> within your visual field or, or tactile field? All of that is like much more helpful to actually reverse engineer the brain. Wow. So one of the things that I find fascinating about the way that you look at things is that you're willing to speculate about how these ideas uh, could unfold over very long timescales, even, <laughs> even cosmic timescales. But you've uh, talked a bit about how we might intervene on our own mental architecture and optimize our minds in various ways, wireheading. And yes. So what is wireheading? Could you uh, take us through a little bit about what you mean by that? Yes. So a wirehead is an entity that has modified itself to be always happy. <laughs> and I think, I think uh, I mean, usually when the subject of wireheading is brought up, it's usually brought up as kind of a conversation stopper or is, is brought up as a way of uh, 
dismissing a particular, you know, utopia. It's like, reductio oh, reductio ad absurdum. Yeah, reductio ad absurdum, exactly. It's like, oh, you you want us all to be just wireheads and do nothing, be couch potatoes, and <laughs> it's it's really really interesting that like very few people actually take take seriously the possibility that there might be a way of doing wireheading done right, like a, a way in which it's actually healthy, sustainable, it maintains uh, your current values, uh, and may even help you achieve your current uh, objectives in a much more effective way. So I think like, yeah, the, the main article I've written on this topic is called Wireheading Done Right, Stay Positive Without Going Insane. And uh, it basically walks over all of the different common uh, traps that come with wireheading. Some of the, the most important ones is Basically, people forget about negative reinforcement mechanisms. You can't, for example, take uh, methamphetamine and, and, and expect to, to be happy for the rest of your life. Uh, it's, it's not going to work. I mean, on the, on the whole, you'll probably be a lot less happy when, once you consider also the, all the downs, uh, downs from it. Um, so negative feedback mechanisms is, is one, one problem, that our brain is wired in such a way that there's uh, hedonic adaptation. Um, but we can definitely imagine... Uh, that being engineered away from our brains. So that would be without compromising the evolutionary function that negative states had for us. So we wouldn't be, say, worried about not feeling pain anymore because we'd have a more bliss-orientated response to putting our hand on a hot oven, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, oh, it would feel much better if I took my hand off this extremely <laughs> hot plate. <laughs> Absolutely. You could stop hitting me with a hammer in my face. That would be nice. <laughs> but the, yeah, there's nothing that says that um, you can't instantiate all of these functionalities. But at a highly enriched hedonic range. I mean, it will, it will still still be gradients of uh, how positive it is, but it's just going to be potentially all completely within the positive side. I mean, neurologically, we do have uh, some really pros promising examples of how you could actually avoid negative reinforcement. So to begin with, if you put an electrode in a person's pleasure centers, the person doesn't actually get habituated to that pleasure. The first time and the thousandth time that you stimulate the pleasure centers with uh, electricity, it feels just as good, which is is crazy and insane because if you do it with uh, substances like cocaine or you know some something highly recreational, that's just not the case. The the magic disappears over time. Uh, there's even like permanent tolerance that you've taken a substance a, a lot for let's say a few years, and even if you stop completely and you take it again. 10 or 20 years later, it still doesn't work as well as, as it used to. And the other very important uh, component of that is there's also very promising anti-tolerance drugs. Of them, we definitely have uh, ibogaine uh, that basically seems to reverse opioid tolerance. We also have proglumide. Uh, this was to treat uh, ulcers in, in the 60s, but it also has a upregulating function for opioid receptors. And I went just to say that when you say we have, you, know, <laughs> you don't have these drugs on you now. No, You're no, not no. selling them. They're not available <laughs> on the website. No, 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 no. We have, as the scientific community right, right. Has, uh, has studies on, on this. Uh, there's agmatine, um, also pretty promising. I mean, and I think all of these are currently just hacks and proofs of concept for what's to come, which will be like a, a way of completely preventing tolerance from ways to activate your, your brain in a very pleasant way. Right, so all of this ultimately seems to be pointing in the direction of us asking ourselves, what is it that we want to want? What is it that our minds 
are trying to achieve together. And uh, if the answer is, in some general sense, positive valence, how do you how do we make sure that we're while we're radically increasing our positive valence, we don't undermine the functional role that these negative states have for keeping us alive? Right. So there's quite a few ways of going about doing that. I mean, one of them is offloading uh, into synthetic uh, prosthesis, so to speak, uh, all that all that all that functionality. Uh, like, oh, you're in danger. Well, the your robotic skeleton will move you away from from danger without having uh, to make you worried. For example, I also, I mean, definitely anticipate in the future we will live in in much safer environments. Overall, they will think that um, being in the, in the city or uh, driving a car or like you know even flying were completely insane risks <laughs> that we were taking on a daily basis. Uh, given how valuable life will actually be uh, experienced as, and. Uh, I mean, there's definitely the question of, of values, right? A lot of people are very concerned of, well, if I were to radically increase my hedonic tone, be animated by gradients of bliss, I'm not convinced that I would want the same things as I want nowadays. And especially if you have, you know, kind of like a preference uh, utilitarian ethic or a preference-focused ethics, where like the point of life is to satisfy people's preferences. A lot of people who have that intuition would see wireheading as very undesirable because it's basically going into a new state of consciousness where your old you, so to speak, doesn't doesn't exist there anymore. And when you consider that, I mean, honestly, it seems likely that 99% of people's thoughts um, nowadays, uh, and probably forever, have a tinge of, of anxiety to them. People are kind of like constantly trying to, to move away from anxiety in, in one of many, many, many ways, uh, whether it is uh, social rejection or whether, whether it is like fear of death or, or poor health or, or even just like bodily, the fear of body pain and so on. Mm. In a radically enhanced uh, state, maybe only 1% of your thoughts will have anything to do with anxiety. And this is why I think people have such a hard time imagining, like, what would we want if we were happy all the time? <laughs> It's really hard to relate to that. This, in as the species is implemented nowadays, fully happy thoughts are very rare. I think uh, an intuition of a lot of people will be that positive and negative feelings are sort of like a spectrum, and that the depth of possible uh, suffering is kind of what allows for experience uh, of a positive kind to have the sort of valence that they do. Could you respond to that? <laughs> Definitely. So. Yeah, the, the the argument of there is no good without the bad. You need it's all the, relative. It's right? all relative, or you need the contrast uh, in order to actually see the goodness. Mm. Um, I call this view the balance between good and evil take on reality. Right. But I mean, it's it's actually pretty pretty self defeating. I mean, most people who take that view, in my appraisal of of their uh, intuitions, is in a sense uh, doing it as a form of coping with their own suffering try to, to make it less problematic, somehow give meaning to it. Learned helplessness. Yeah, learned helplessness is, is like, yeah, the, the metaphor of if you get hit in the hammer, if you get hit in the head with a hammer every Sunday, um, at some point you will just like think, oh yeah, this is just part of human experience and, and get on with life. And, and you'll defend it. You well. might even defend it, yes. And other people will be like, you know what, I'm not going this Sunday. <laughs> Yeah. Like, if you don't go and get your head hit by hand, this is by no means a metaphor for going to church, by the way. I, <laughs> Sunday, I'm assuming, is just randomly the day that you chose. Yes, yes, totally random. And 
a thing like a relationship with suffering is is a lot like that. I think it so it is true. I think that for a lot of people, some of the most intense, pleasant experiences that they've had come from a sense of relief after they've experienced a lot of negative experience. They're kind of like getting out of depression or finally getting done with with a with a project that was causing you a lot of stress. But I mean, just like look at it from a kind of like more rigorous point of view. Okay. Let's assume that, yes, maybe that's the, the moment in which people feel the best because they have the contrast, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like now examine what is making that uh, brain state feel so good. Basically, if the perception of contrast, the belief and, and the, the state produced by having experienced a lot of pain and now not experiencing anymore is the most pleasant, you can just take that brain state and reproduce it without having to have experienced the pain before. So, I mean, you could imagine, like, if you could copy a mind uh, in software or, bi- or in biology, and contrast was needed for very pleasant experiences, well, just, like, take a person who suffered 10 years and now they're getting out of depression and copy that mind at that point in time, like, a million times. Then you will have, like, a million years of bliss with only just the 10 years of setting the mind into that state. That's a great example, Yeah. Um, so could you talk a bit about how in the future, you know, assuming that we understand a lot more about our minds, maybe the uh, maybe the symmetry theory of valence is true and it's given rise to a sophisticated science. How do you think a visit to a psychotherapist or a psychologist might be different to how it goes down today? Oh, yes. I think it would be called clinical phenomenology. <laughs> So phenomenology tends to be, you know, thought, like associated a lot with armchair philosophy and not, not very, you know, applicable. But uh, with clinical phenomenology, basically you would go to a clinic uh, rather than uh, just like filling up a questionnaire that determines, oh, you're, you know, you, you have anxiety or uh, you, you have depression. It wouldn't be like that at all. And certainly you wouldn't just be uniformly prescribed something like a, a SSRI or like a classical antidepressant. Hmm. which is kind of just like a hammer approach or like a, you know, like a very, very blunt, blunt tool. Rather, you would, they would put you in, in, a, in brain imaging, uh, for example, like a, an fMRI, and uh, they would determine basically what aspect of your conscious experience is producing the negative valence. If the symmetry theory of valence is correct, uh, I, the answer might look like something, something such as, hey, the 17th and 19th harmonic are in a state of dissonance with each other. So all you really need to do is take coloracetam, like or some one of these like obscure nootropics that usually are very subtle. Like for most people, they would take it and they would feel almost nothing, like maybe something very subtle, but they can't really tell. But maybe if you take it, you will feel wonderful because it's gonna get rid of, let's say, the 17th harmonic or or tone it down. And in a very customized way, take care of your particular brand of, of negative valence. Sort of a harmonic corrective, I guess. Yeah, basically a scientifically valid reharmonization of of your state of consciousness. That's amazing, and I think if things do develop in this direction, uh, you know, the more that we choose our experience at a precise level, we're probably also going to move to a more universal view about what it is that minds care about in a sort of ultimate sense. So uh, from the perspective of ethics, would you say that we're moving towards 
uh, an ethics which is more specifically based around changes in consciousness or exploring possible consciousness? Are we, are we eventually headed for a kind of valence utilitarianism? Yes, uh, valence utilitarianism. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, just to be, uh, you know, candid, I tend to prioritize uh, reducing and eliminating suffering, at least as kind of like an ethical emergency. But I also think it's going to be extremely important and, and very tragic <laughs> if we don't um, explore the entire state space of consciousness, uh, basically uh, systematically looking through all of the possible ways in which um, you could experience reality, um, and even in a more generalized way, because, you know, what I call representational consciousness, kind of like the fact that you, your brain generates this world simulation, um, that is still just a specific corner case of what you can do with consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, I think like if you take a, a random state of consciousness, it's not going to be representational. It's not going to have this additional feeling of, oh, this is about something, or this is uh, how I see the world. It's going to be something much more general. It's going to be um, Quillia varieties that are um, completely new to us, that are just as different as... Um, visual experience is from auditory experience, mm -hmm. but in completely different dimensions. And in the state space of consciousness, I would imagine there are incredible jewels, like incredible treasures so that it's, it's unfathomably valuable to, to explore and instantiate. There's, there's really not much reason to believe that evolution uh, really optimized for finding consciousness that is hyper-valuable. Mm -hmm. It's just you know, we are adaptation ex executors and evolution selected the states of consciousness that helps our genes reproduce. Not, not hyper or super happiness, uh, but that's, that's in the state space of consciousness uh, somewhere. Yeah, it does seem to be becoming much more clearly articulated in philosophy and in, in ethics. It, the, it's consciousness, which is really the space of all meaning and value. And that's regardless of what you take the ultimate nature of consciousness to be. So in modern ethics, increasingly it's consciousness or potentials of consciousness that qualify moral significance. So we are beginning to go beyond human ethics at this point and imagining something much broader and more universal. Right. And also for the same reason, it, it really dissolves the boundaries between species. For example, <laughs> this sounds super grim, but I think like in, in the future, when, when we look back, we were uh, putting animals for their entire lives in factory farms and, and eating them. And they, they're going to think of that as a quasi-cannibalistic activity. It's like, oh yeah, these like, you know, more complex information processing quilia bundles were torturing these slightly less complex quilia bundles, but they were both consciousness nonetheless. We, we see the world through the Darwinianly evolved speciesist eyes that we have. I mean, we, we only generally tend to identify with other humans. But if you have a consciousness-centric point of view, then yeah, you actually need to identify with all sentient beings. They, they're part of the, the same underlying nature of reality. I imagine that your views about consciousness have an effect in your life. Are you, for example, a vegetarian? Definitely. And I'm a, I'm a big advocate for clean meat. I think that's the, the new branding. But yeah, basically meat that doesn't require building a whole nervous system, <laughs> an entire animal and its skeleton and inner organs, just the meat. <laughs> right. And we can grow that in, in the laboratory at the moment. And presumably that'll become cheap at some point. 
Yes, yes, I think it's gonna reach parity pretty pretty soon actually. And yeah, I think I think that's definitely gonna cause a a worldwide moral uh, ethical revolution. And it's it's gonna be strange because yeah, people will will be pretty appalled by by how we treated other sentient beings before, and it's gonna be yeah. I mean, as long as there's a little bit of a conflict of interest, is is hard to think uh, ethically in a in a consistent way. I mean, as David Pierce emphasizes, uh, the argument boils down to like, well, uh, I like how meat interacts with my taste receptors. <laughs> like that's that's really the argument for why why torture animals. But um, it's difficult to justify, really. Yeah, <laughs> but but I'm also yeah I'm also um, identified with effective altruism, and I think moralizing people can often turn turn them off. Uh, I don't think it's very cost uh, cost effective. It's much better to focus on ways to give them what they want in a way that doesn't cause suffering. Right. So I want to bring in uh, David Pierce, and you've talked about the influence of uh, the philosopher David Pierce, and you're thinking about ethics and his radical view about reducing suffering in the natural world. Uh, so he has this view that um, in the future, at some point, our ethical concerns coupled with our technology uh, is going to lead us to attempting to radically intervene on the natural world in terms of the suffering that exists there and the suffering that other animals and other beings are going through and put each other through. Um, you know, ethicists today are, of course, very concerned with factory farming and animal cruelty. But uh, David Pierce is talking about essentially genetically altering predators like big cats and um, re-engineering ecosystems to be to have less suffering. It, it sounds a little bit crazy to some people, but I think mainly the concerns about that are around the unexpected consequences of meddling in the natural world. But in principle, if it were possible to have this kind of radical influence on the natural world and, and in an effective way, would this be something that you'd be for, Andreas? <laughs> uh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I gather I wouldn't I wouldn't get many votes <laughs> on a on a uh, political platform. <laughs> I think if you break it down, it is something that is ultimately going to be something we would aspire to if we identify as consciousness, and yet it does seem like something that's way off. Right. We definitely do have kind of like a a particular ethics hardware for how we kind of uh, judge the morality of different situations, and I mean the the whole concept of. Uh, desert and responsibility uh, really comes up. And and that's kind of like how people tend to operate. I mean, we evolved um, with an ethic uh, that allows us to basically not be, to not be kicked out of your tribe. So a lot of like the kind of like ethical concerns and anxiety that we feel about situations have a lot to do with uh, social judgment. It's like, oh, how will other people see me? So the, the concept of responsibility and, and ownership of one's actions uh, kind of like become projected out into the world and one thinks that well somehow only the suffering for which we are directly responsible uh, is our responsibility that I mean that kind of makes sense in a tribal reputational system but if you try to you know find the truth about ethics or kind of like at least have a completely self-consistent uh, view of of what what is good and what exists I, I think it's it will either fall uh, in one way where for example, you successfully argue that what matters for, for value is something like uh, verbal cognition or something like that, that, okay, maybe only humans really have it. 
or, or it will come down to something else like consciousness. Uh, in which case, you know, it doesn't really matter whether we are causing the suffering or not. If we have the ability to prevent it and we, and we don't, we are responsible for it uh, just by inaction. And um, a lot of people kind of like want to have it both ways, which is like, well, I only care about, you know, verbal, verbal ability <laughs> for, for, for ethics and also for the animals that I somehow interact with or I somehow have a closer relationship with. But yeah, I would argue that's a very inconsistent view. It's very hard to square with any uh, serious ethical framework. Right. So in addition to us having a responsibility to potentially at some point intervene in the natural world and try and re-engineer it to have less suffering, which seems like quite a feat, but it's not in principle that it couldn't be on the table at some later time. (laughs) But I think David Pierce also has this example where he's like, if there's super intelligent beings out there in the universe, aliens who are just feeling great all the time, well, they should be feeling a little bit guilty that they haven't come here and helped us out. Right. They're probably on their way here now, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. Uh, no, I think, I mean, that, that, that is a, a good example. The status quo bias is perhaps one of the, the most important elements here. Uh, and David Pierce has this example of, imagine going to another planet uh, where, you know, um, they were able to completely get rid of suffering. And it's been like that for thousands of years. Mm. Um, should you introduce some suffering, you know, for the purpose of increasing balance <laughs> between good and evil in there. It's like it, it, it feels like, no, you, you really wouldn't have the right to it. And also it would be just intrinsically bad to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for, for some reason it's like, well, it has always been this way. Therefore, there's, there's something intrinsically valuable about that. So one of the things that you focused on, which I think is very interesting, is identity and how different modes of identity lead us to having... Uh, quite different sets of values and priorities and in particular the difference between what's called closed individualism and open individualism so could you take us through these very different ways of seeing our identity in the universe definitely so the terms come from uh, Daniel Kolek I believe he's a Czech philosopher and mathematician who is extremely prolific and and, uh, very brilliant Uh, he he wrote a book called uh, I Am You, and also another book called uh, In Search of Myself. Really wonderful books. I, I highly recommend uh, reading them. And um, uh, within them, he, he elaborates on, on this framework for basically how explaining what are the possible big picture accounts for who we are, and especially who we are over time, uh, across time and space. So we can start off with closed individualism. Closed individualism is the common sense view of identity. It's also the form of identity that we really evolved to experience, uh, where basically you're not very concerned about whether the person who wakes up tomorrow in the morning in, in your bed is, is going to be you, I mean, in, with your same body. <laughs> it's going to be um, automatically you because it's, you know, it's just like the causal continuation of your own biological body. You don't really question your continuity over time and you don't question the distinctiveness between you and others. In this view, you think that Basically, you started existing when you were born, you're going to stop existing when you die, or maybe go to heaven or hell if, if a soul exists, but you're still a separate, distinct entity uh, relative to everybody else and, and the entirety of reality. And I would say, yeah, maybe like 95% of people have either implicitly or explicitly this view of, uh, of identity, which uh, takes us to empty individualism, which is 
the view that you're just this very thin time slice of experience. It's almost like the a whole life is similar to a movie in the sense that there's a lot of snapshots, each of them containing you know sound and and sight and touch and and, and smell and so on. But in in this view, uh, each of those slices is a different entity. The information content in in them is correlated. I mean, if you take two slices that are next to each other, they're going to look very similar. But being similar is not the same as being the same. Right. right? And so, and when it comes to identity, arguably, uh, if you associate uh, identity with information content, any kind of difference in information content represents a different entity. There's, I mean, there's like this kind of gray area view uh, that some, some people take. One of the most famous would be Derek Parfit, which is kind of the, the graded view of identity, which is you right now and you in a second are more the same person than you right now and you uh, in 10 years. You share a threshold amount of memories with the yeah. future self. Yeah, but that, that view to me is extremely insane because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things it just doesn't account for is the transitivity of identity. That mm. if A is the same underlying being as B and B is the same underlying uh, being as C, I think that implies A and C are the same underlying being. And in these, the kind of like the graded view, you could take just like very small changes and you would get a transitive chain that in principle would make you the same as everybody else. Uh, because there's a finite number of changes to your consciousness that, that would take your information content of your experience to that of anybody else. So um, closed individualism and by extension, empty individualism uh, is a view of self as kind of infinitely finite in a way, because the self is entirely reducible. And uh, to the extent to which it even exists, uh, it's sort of trapped in space-time. Uh, so any change in consciousness potentially uh, construes the death of the self, in a way. <laughs> exactly. Uh, especially, yeah, especially on some views of closed individualism, where, for example, you may associate with your own sense of self. Again, not, not necessarily... Uh, a soul, but kind of like this feeling of who you are and how you're related to other people, in which case, yeah, like taking salvia would be killing you while the effects are in action, uh, because, hey, like that sense of self is not there, so it's not you, or you don't have access to your memories, uh, you don't know you're a person. Yeah, so closed individualists, generally speaking, I think would be very cautious of quite a lot of transformations to their consciousness and, and identity. So uh, closed individualism and empty individualism uh, don't sound like particularly attractive views of self. So, but fortunately, there's another, there's a third option, right? Which yes. <laughs> open individualism. Yes, open individualism. Uh, I think open is pretty suggestive here. Of there's no no boundaries. I mean, the the inside and outside is uh, fundamentally the same. It's more of a mathematical maybe topological feature, but not, not a change of fundamental substance, uh, what divides people. And, I mean, in brief, what open individualism says is that there's only one consciousness, or there's only one subject of experience. And everything that has ever been experienced is being experienced by that uh, subject of experience. I mean, that is not to say that there's one personality. Of course not, because the subject of experience would incorporate what it feels like to be a pig and what it feels like to be a cat or maybe a butterfly. So it really doesn't imply any particular personhood as such. So one way of looking at it is kind of like you would be the light of consciousness 
and the light of consciousness is what makes things real. And all moments of experience have that underlying light of consciousness, even though the information content that that light of consciousness is illuminating could be very, very different. Right. And so in identifying with consciousness in general, this provides a much broader ground of identity. And this, of course, leads us to open individualism. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, one, one important component of it is basically showing that closed individualism is not self-consistent. Closed individualism tends to generate contradictions, uh, reductio ad absurdums. Um, the reason is that you need to identify identity carrier. I mean, basically, a set of conditions uh, necessary and sufficient uh, for you to be uh, the same entity over time. And the problem is that it doesn't really matter which identity carrier you choose. You can always construct a scenario that challenges it as uh, something unique in the universe. For example, if you say that you are your memories, well, that's, that's kind of odd to begin with because it kind of violates transitivity of identity. Because for sure, me tomorrow has my memories, but I don't have its memories, which is kind of weird to construct an asymmetric form of identity. Right. Um, it also has the problem that you could insert your own memories in somebody else. <laughs> Does that make, make you wake up in their, in their body uh, now, all of a sudden? It would allow you to basically create multiple copies of yourself. There wouldn't be any ground truth to which is the original. And um, that challenges uh, close individualism, which, which postulates there's only one, one of you. You could also identify with a causal power, like you're you, the causal uh, relationships that arise from your body, but that connects you to the rest of the universe. I mean, we're all causally connected to each other in this very big web. So it's not causality. You could also say like genes, but of course you can have like identical twins. Okay, sure. <laughs> Uh, genes is probably not fundamentally who you are. And yeah, brain structure, if you choose something like uh, states of consciousness or brain structure, then you end up collapsing into empty individualism because, well, even the tiniest of changes actually changes your, your brain structure or your state of consciousness. So closed individualism, even though it's the most common one and people base their ethical intuitions on it, it's also the hardest to defend uh, philosophically. Whereas I think like empty and open are, are defensible, are, are pretty, pretty possible to defend and I'd say they are likely true. Right. And obviously each of these views has quite broad implications to what we care about and so what we're likely to do. So how do these different views play out? You seem to be suggesting that there's a strategic advantage to open individualism. That's right. I mean, I think open individualism is one of the ways in which we can rigorously derive ethics without it being just, you know, like top-down moralizing or or based on shame or anxiety. It's like, no, like, why should you be good to other sentient beings? Why should you prevent suffering in others? It's, it's not because you want to be seen as a good person by others, but it's because outright you would be experiencing that suffering on, on some level in a way that maybe matters as ethically as uh, preventing suffering in, in your own body tomorrow preventing suffering in a pig might be just just as urgent and it also has the advantage that you don't identify with a particular shape of consciousness and what that enables to do is uh, really increase the the range of uh, entities that can cooperate with each other because if you identify with your own body maybe with your own species with your own uh, genes or your tribe or ethnicity you, you may say something like I want a future where 
any entity that belongs to this class uh, gets to, you know, be free and happy and, and have a, a flourishing and so on. But I don't care about the, the other classes. Instead, if you have like entities and, and, and beings who identify with consciousness in general, it doesn't matter how different they are. Mm. They will all identify with each other's uh, well-being and, and valence gradients. They will actively want to cooperate it which is, is really fascinating. I mean, you could have experiences that are as different to each other as the yeah, societies from, from sound, but even in a much more radical way that nonetheless still want to cooperate with each other because they identify with consciousness in general. So in a way, this sort of larger view of identity is a more serviceable strategy for minds in the universe. Yeah, that's right. And I think it, it might also be a convergence point um, of evolution. Um, there is probably a, a subset of intelligent civilizations that converge collectively on something like open individualism and, and treat the universe as their home more broadly, not, not only their, their own super specific conditions that gave rise to their own evolutionary uh, history. Yeah. And you can imagine how closed individualism initially makes sense, evolutionarily speaking, when you're alone in the jungle and you're being hunted. Uh, but presumably there comes a point at which open individualism is really the only way to participate in more broadly cooperative behavior and positive sum games. Right. I mean, it's almost like there's a lot of open individualist intuitions that just come from empathy itself. Uh, I mean, we obviously have a, a biased way of al allocating empathy. Obviously, we feel much more empathetic towards our family members or, or significant others or, or friends. And evolutionarily that that makes quite a bit of sense i mean like genes that can identify similar genes and cooperate with those and identify with those well basically uh, max maximize inclusive fitness which is really what evolution is, is optimizing for not so much your own individual genes but rather you benefiting the genes that you have whether they're in your body or not so there is kind of this inbuilt ability to identify with others obviously there's also a, a, a gradient, a gradient uh, of that among people. There's people who have very low levels of empathy and people with very high levels of empathy. And there's like in, in some extreme, you even have people who have mirror touch synesthesia. If they see that you get hurt, they literally feel the pain in their own bodies or like they feel the pain in your body, <laughs> in their own inner world representation. And it's possible to argue that if we... Uh, existing in, in some kind of like colony form uh, where most of us were clones of each other or brothers and sisters like in an ant colony or something mm -hmm. like that we would be a lot more open individualistic by nature like our, our like consciousness would, would have our consciousness would have evolved to identify with each other much more because, because we'd share more of the same genes and exactly. that's what's driving evolution <laughs> yes so so I think it's, some, it's, a, it's kind of like a parameter of your world simulation. I mean, on psychedelics, usually that parameter gets uh, messed up a little bit or, or we, there's more wiggle room in it. So mm -hmm. somebody who's a very, very strong closed individualist can get the taste of what empty or, or open individualism feels like. Uh, mm -hmm. There's like more of a, it becomes more unstable. Andres. It's now time for us to speculate together about the far future of consciousness in the universe. <laughs> and I'm, I'm referring to what you've described as a cosmic battle between consciousness and pure replicators. Could you talk a bit about this cosmic battle and which side should I be on? 
<laughs> for sure. So, yeah, so consciousness versus pure replicators is a grand narrative of reality. And I think most ideologies and philosophies usually come with a grand narrative of reality. They come with what is going on, what is like the big picture, you know, battle that is happening, or what are we in the process of making. Uh, you, you have like a lot of religions that, that say uh, this is a very big battle between good and evil, the essentialized evil. I mean, they might even personify it like, oh, Satan versus God or something like that. Um, then you have like grand narratives that involve like the balance between good and evil. I mean, Hinduism arguably is sort of like that. And yeah, a lot of Stoics uh, may, may argue, yeah, like it's all about like keeping the balance, not letting like either of them get, get ahead of each other. Uh, they need each other. Okay, so, and then you have kind of this third view, the Gradients of Wisdom account. I mean, people like Sam Harris, uh, I would say like Elias Yurtkowski, Nick Bostrom, people who are thinking very hard about the future, but also uh, are willing to bite the bullet that some societies can be better than others, some states of consciousness can be better than others. There is such a thing as uh, ability to process information efficiently, and, you know, it, it actually uh, adds up to, hey, like there's a way of maximizing the chances of, of human flourishing. Uh, there's ways of really detracting from it. There's no like necessary balance between good and evil. Mm. Uh, but also there isn't like evil in and of itself. In the gradients of wisdom kind of account, uh, people tend to imagine evil rather as kind of the, the unfortunate circumstance of self-centered uh, strategies that evolution picked up on and, and implemented. So it wasn't that you know, it's not there's like this evil entity tempting people and, you know, things like that. But even this view can be somewhat limited at times because it doesn't provide necessarily a, a way of um, really telling whether a given society or a given uh, pattern of behavior is, is bad. It's still, there's still kind of like an element of subjectivity, externalized subjectivity and like projecting your own values onto the world. And then there's like this, yeah, what, what I think is kind of the correct way of, of looking at the world or the big picture. Uh, sometimes I call it uh, the story so far mm. is consciousness versus pure replicators. So what, what is this about? Pure replicators are entities who only care about making copies of themselves independent of how that affects uh, states of consciousness either in themselves or others. So... A pure replicator could, for example, choose to become unconscious, stop being conscious, if that is going to increase its chances of making more copies of itself. Uh, and there's like some environments in which consciousness is just too too costly. It's, it's just, uh, it takes too many calories, uh, and you would probably be better off without it uh, in terms of making copies of yourself. But obviously, if all the value is in consciousness, you just eliminated <laughs> the, the source of value <laughs> right. in, in this situation. Um, and in the other opposite extreme, uh, basically, you have consciousness-centered entities. But just before we move on here, yeah. so like a, a pure replicator, how, what are these in terms of how, how are they merging on, on the cosmic stage? Are they the result of rampant artificial intelligence? They, they happen at every possible uh, level of organization, from the very smallest to the largest and from the very brief to the very long term. Um, I, I would say, for example, viruses tend to be pure replicators. It's right. just like, hey, this organization of matter that is really good at making copies of itself, it, uh, it 
Chris doesn't care that it might produce a lot of negative qualia, uh, sickness and suffering. And it, it also could be causing benefits to the, to the host. Uh, and it also doesn't care <laughs> as long as it just helps it reproduce. Right. But there's a, peer replicators also appear in other levels of organization. I mean, I would say uh, there's a lot of uh, beliefs that are peer replicators. Beliefs that they don't help you or help your family. They don't help anybody but they cause you anxiety if you don't spread them. <laughs> and, okay, like, that's just like, hey, like, it's parasitic. It's like utilizing cognitive resources for the purpose of making copies of itself without paying rent <laughs> in, in any way. But it could also happen at the collective level. I mean, I would say a lot of societies at their limit would become pure replicators. It's just like, oh, this clockwork system that uh, puts everybody as a cog of the system Nobody's having a good time, but the system is really robust. It's really good at continuing to exist. So in essence, pure replicators are in competition for the same resources which could be made to realize consciousness and develop the space of possible conscious experiences. That is right. And uh, by default, they have the upper hand. Is that because they don't have to expend any energy to be concerned about conscious experiences? That is correct. They right. simply don't, right? So given two options, one that marginally increases reproduction and one that marginally increases benefit to consciousness, they will choose the, the latter. And I mean, this may seem like not very much. When you think of, of the exponential population growth that, that comes about from even just very small differences in rates of reproduction, over time, anything that is even just marginally better at making copies of themselves usually just takes over completely. So... It does represent a very big advantage, even if locally it may not, may, not, may not seem like it. That would be kind of the natural path, unless one of two conditions. I mean, in the first condition, conscious entities deliberately organize in order to prevent pure replicators from existing, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of like a, would be a constant battle uh, up to a point. Uh, there might be a, a moment in which, okay, they've engineered the environment so well that no peer replicators ever uh, have any evolutionary advantage. And the other option is if consciousness itself actually confers very strong reproductive advantages of some sort. I think uh, the way to win for consciousness, to actually uh, create positive valence, positive value, continue to maintain intelligence in the future, and uh, the ability to explore consciousness, will require a combination of harnessing the uh, usefulness of consciousness and also protecting it, which will take a lot of resources, but I think it's necessary. And one of the key usefulness of consciousness is its computational power. I mean, I really think that the reason why we have a complex conscious experience is because it, it is evolutionarily adaptive because consciousness is very efficient at processing certain kinds of information. Uh, then again, that, that doesn't mean that uh, consciousness is better at solving computational problems in every circumstance. Mm. And maybe we are a very specific niche that like, given our biological implementation, consciousness is very useful, but maybe if you have access to uh, other materials and other, and other architectures, then consciousness is actually not a, any advantage at all. In which case, yeah, pure replicators might, might continue to have the upper hand. Right. And I suppose, of course, the way in which consciousness does actually have the upper hand against pure replicators is that, and assuming that open individualism is the convergence point of ethics and identity that it seems to be, then 
eventually all conscious entities become allied with each other, uh, whereas pure replicators are in competition with everyone, including other pure replicators. <laughs> yes, that is right. Uh, yes, exactly. Open individualism together with a consciousness focus has the, yeah, the tremendous advantage of uh, being a really good uh, point of cooperation among a lot of entities. So it does facilitate super cooperation, so to speak, like co cooperation between entities that you would otherwise think have completely different values and completely different objectives and modes of experiencing the world. And um, that said, you know, um, closed individualists and uh, pure replicators could uh, band up together as well in order to fend off from the dangers of <laughs> cooperating consciousness. This sort of reminds me of Star Wars and the uh, the light side and the dark side of the Force. Yes, I would say Star Wars is a clear example of a meta narrative that happens in the balance between good and evil level. I could imagine, yeah, a Star Wars that happens at the consciousness versus pure replicators level. Sort of a, a futuristic Bhagavad Gita in a way. <laughs> yeah, if I ever have have time for that, I, I'd love to write a, a novel about it. Amazing. Andreas, uh, we're almost out of time, uh, but I really want to thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I, I've spent the last couple of weeks going down a real rabbit hole with your essays and online presentations. And, you know, I really feel if people are interested in some of the things that you're talking about, then they really need to check out your essays online because we've hardly scratched the surface here. So, Andreas, where should people go to find out more about your research and the things that you're thinking about? Right. Well, I mean, definitely qualiacomputing.com, uh, the Qualia Research Institute as well. Um, they're, I would say, very allied authors, for sure. David Pierce. Uh, there's not a single essay of David Pierce that I wouldn't recommend. I do recommend uh, specifically a couple of them. Uh, one of them I, I like a lot is called The Biointelligence Explosion, uh, where David Pierce basically explains what the implications are of uh, recursively self-improving intelligence in biology, assuming that digital computers will not be conscious. And then the, the other one that I highly recommend is uh, the hedonistic imperative uh, itself. I mean, it's, it's a long, long essay, but extremely, extremely worth reading. Is this the one in which he suggests that we might one day optimize the natural world to be, have a lot less suffering? Uh, yes. He, he talks about it, uh, he talks about the entirety of, of the ecosystem being based on gradients of, of well-being. Yeah, I definitely want to read more of David Pierce. He's a, definitely an important philosopher. And I think you are an important philosopher as well. And so I want to thank you again for joining me on the Waking Cosmos podcast. It's been really fascinating to hear about your ideas. And I think there's a lot more that you and I could talk about. So I really hope we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. I've, I've had a blast. Uh, it's been amazing. Great. If you are enjoying Waking Cosmos and would like me to continue making this content, please consider supporting me on Patreon, where for a monthly subscription beginning at a dollar a month, you can get early access to every episode of the podcast, as well as videos, exclusive Q&As with me, and other perks and ways to participate. It's very easy to sign up, edit, or cancel your pledge at any time, so there's really nothing to lose. 
I'd really love to be able to turn Waking Cast Moss into a full-time project, but I can only do that with your support. All of this is entirely community funded. So it really is people like you who are making this possible. So if you choose to sign up or you're already supporting Waking Cosmos, thank you. You really are helping me to do what I love. And of course, if you can't afford to pledge, that's absolutely fine as well. Please just continue to enjoy this content. Remember, if you do enjoy this episode, don't forget to give it a like, a share, and please consider spending a moment to leave us a nice review if you're listening on iTunes. It's very helpful for our visibility and I really appreciate it. Okay, that is about it from me today. I will see you next time for more episodes of Waking Cosmos, where we explore the nature of consciousness, reality, and life's place in the universe. I'm Adrian Nelson. I hope you have a beautiful day.